and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Hamstring strains can not only shut down an athlete's season, but it can also be a chronic recurring issue that presents significant athletic and quality of life issues for both athletes and our orthopedic patients. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Brian Heiderscheidt to help us digest the most recent hamstring strain CPG so we can better our care for this patient population. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Okay, so Dr. Brian Heiderscheidt, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us on JOSBT Insights. Oh, thank you, Chelsea. I'm happy to be here. So I want to start off with a super simple question, but it seemed pretty important for this. What exactly are we talking about in this CPG? Yeah, that's a really important point to make and to clarify, because I think when people shorten hamstring strain injury down to hamstring injury, all of a sudden it becomes this bigger thing, right? You have tendon injuries and you've got posterior thigh pain and you have other sources of injury that could lump into that category. But we are very specifically talking about hamstring strain injuries. These are sudden onset injuries that occur with activity or athletic play, typically in sports. Uh, and require the individual to stop participation immediately. Not yeah. tendons, just not muscle. tendons. No, is exactly <laughs> right. It's a whole other thing. Whole other thing. It truly is. And if you treat one, if you treat a hamstring, if you treat a tendinopathy, I should say, like you treat a hamstring strain injury, you're going to be potentially creating more problems. And so you really do want to make sure that we set, we accurately differentiate them at the get go, correctly diagnose them, and then pursue the, the right plan of care. And so that is a beautiful segue. So what, what are we looking for in the diagnosis so that we can say, wait a minute, okay, this is hamstring strain. This is not, uh, this is muscle. This is not tendon. This is not something else. Well, the beauty of a hamstring strain injury is the history is like the critical part to it. When they come in and say, I was running, I was sprinting, I was kicking. And all of a sudden I felt this sharp pain in the back of my thigh and I could no longer participate in the sport. I couldn't, I had problems walking. I was limping. That's a giant indicator right there that you're talking about a sudden onset hamstring strain injury. Tendinopathies don't set on that way, right? They're very gradual in terms of their development. The locations can oftentimes be very similar. So you can't go by where the pain is because that, that can easily be one or the other. But that mechanism of injury, that sudden onset is the key hallmark indicator. And then the CPG kind of talks about not only like how it happens in that mechanism, but then how are we diagnosing it in the clinic? Yeah, so much of the diagnostic process as a clinician, you've got that figured out or 90% of it determined after the history, right? After they tell you the mechanism. Right. Now, the, the the physical exam at that point really comes down to saying, how severe is the injury, right? Which muscle is injured? Where in the muscle is the injury? It's less about using the physical exam to diagnose it and to differentiate it, although there are some important differentiators that are present. But much of it is about, okay, how severe is this injury? In a very gross way, we can categorize muscle strain injuries as a grade one, grade two, or grade three, right? Grade one is the mild injury that maybe a slight stretch or mild tearing that typically we can recover fairly quickly. Grade two is a more moderate tearing of the muscle, more moderate involvement, uh, more edema. 
more strength loss and grade three is a full rupture. And so the physical exam helps differentiate that based upon the amount of strength that's lost based upon the range of motion, doing a test called the active knee extension test, which is probably one of the best ways to, to assess it, at least based on the evidence, as well as based on the, on the palpation, how big of an area is painful and how far away from the ischial tuberosity is the site of maximum pain. Those are probably your biggest markers that you would do as part of your physical exam. Can you walk us through that special test you were talking about in there? And, and then also when it comes to strength loss, what is the ballpark figure that helps you and helps your thought process when it comes to thinking about this injury as a grade one or grade two or a complete rupture? The test will start with that, the active knee extension test. Really, it's it's nothing more than how we would oftentimes measure hamstring flexibility. And maybe we would use the term, some of you may know it as, as the 90-90 test, right? Where you put the hip at 90. So the, the patient is supine and they're holding their thigh uh, with their hands and they put their knee at their hip at 90 degrees and then they actively extend their knee as close to zero as they can get it. Now, there's a modification to that that's shown better evidence and it's the maximum active knee extension test. And the only differentiating feature to that is instead of the hip being at 90 degrees and being held there, the patient grabs their thigh and pulls it all the way to their chest and keeps it pinned against their chest while they're they actively extend their knee again. And so you're looking at a comparison from one limb to the next as an asymmetry. So it's not so much about what's the normal because some people can get quite a ways and some people can hardly do it at all. So it's really more about an asymmetry measure. And generally with your more severe injuries, you will be, you know, 25, 30 degree difference from one limb to the next. And then from a strength perspective, there's a variety of different tests that you can do. So we know of our manual muscle tests, typically that mid-range. If you have a lot of pain and weakness at that mid-range, typically it's a more severe injury because that's a position that should not be that provocative toward pain. It's when you strength test the muscle at a longer length. So for, for example, if the patient is prone on the table, their hip is at zero degrees and their knee is bent to about 30 degrees and you do a, a, a maximum hold isometrics at that position, that will typically be irritative, right? That whether even, even for a mild injury, they will have pain and weakness. The other interesting piece again too, and so that's kind of grade, between grade one and grade two will be, you know, grade two will have a greater deficit in active knee extension tests. They will have the likelihood for pain at more of a mid-range position. Grade three becomes goofy, right? Because if you, if it, if it's a true rupture, they actually have really good range of motion, right? <laughs> They're not restricted because it's like, there's nothing there. And so the active knee extension test oftentimes will test symmetrically fine. And you, you can't use that as an indicator, but their pain will still be quite severe. Major differences in strength between limbs. Based on what people are finding in their, their history and their actual physical measures, what are the best ways to treat these hamstring strains? And does yeah. that change based on what they're finding in that physical exam. Yeah, good question. So typically speaking, let's just, let's start with the obvious. And those are, are the grade three injuries, right? Those are the really severe ones. They're the ones that you might you almost need to pull out a little bit because those are potential surgical candidates. Sure. Um, so they, they may go down a whole other direction of care. 
grade one and grade two, they are very much treated the same way. And, and oftentimes their process is indistinguishable. It's just what will distinguish them is the progression at which they move through the rehab and maybe way, where they start on that progression. So you can use a very standardized uh, hamstring rehabilitation program, but where a grade one starts versus where a grade two starts might be someplace different. You know, grade ones, you could probably be more aggressive early on than you would with a grade two. But the key elements, I think the, the big takeaway is number one, don't rest too much, right? That's a big one. Typically, what we want people doing is moving within, you know, 24, 48 hours. And that doesn't mean that you're going to put them in and do like, you know, many of us are familiar with hamstring strain injuries and Nordic ex uh, you know, exercises. I'm not suggesting you want to do Nordics within 24 hours after hamstring strain, but you, <laughs> you definitely want to be loading that limb and you can do isometrics. You can do submaximal isometrics. You can do core type of work. You can do double leg bridges. You can activate the muscle in other words, and get it working. That's the best way to inform the recovery process and to influence that recovery process, how the tissue is laid down. You know, don't worry about some of the passive treatments that you might do early on. Some might try to do more of them the massaging or the instrumented type tissue work, there's really not great data for any of that in terms of any influence on outcomes, but there's clear evidence for the importance of moving early to get better outcomes. Does the CBG touch on how much to push that? Yeah, that's out of the literature again, because you think of CPGs that we're really, those are being written based on what the evidence shows, right? Right. And so right. unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, we're also constrained by what the evidence shows. Mm -hmm. And right now the evidence is not great to be able to dictate dosage, frequency, those aspects that, that you're asking for right now, right? How much should I do early on when? But there are specific RCTs that have been done that do have a very prescribed program. Now, those again, those programs haven't been tested to say they're optimum, but it's like, hey, here's a chance. Here's, here's one version, and this version was better than the other version, right? So the, the generally speaking, if you do the exercises three to four times a week, sometimes five, depending on how aggressive you are, that you include load throughout each of those exercises. They can be isometric, starting with reduced range of motion, right? You don't want to take a strained muscle stretch it to end range and then load it because that's going to become very aggravated. Eventually you need to get there, but your progression program involves intensity or load range of motion of the muscle, of the injured muscle, starting with a, a protected range and gradually increasing it, and then moving eventually toward how the hamstring functions, which is that stretch shortening plyometric type cycle. That sort of smooth progression, those guidelines really will, will, will take you all the way through what a person needs to do with their rehab. Is there a certain benchmark that we're looking for as far as pushing into pain, or is this a avoiding pain altogether type of rehab? Jack Hickey, the group out of Australia, did a nice RCT looking at what if we actually progressed people through two programs. One was pain avoidance, right? No pain, that I'm only going to let them do exercise as long as they have zero pain versus pain tolerance. I'm going to let them do an exercise up to their tolerance, which was roughly about a four out of 10 pain. And they found that there was no adverse effects of going up to pain tolerance. In other words, progressing quicker than you otherwise would in terms of a, a pain avoidance program. And they showed the strength gains to be better. You know, this is similar, not exactly the same, but similar in regards to a lot of tendon rehab, not, exa not exactly pain to tolerance, but using a pain monitoring model instead of pain avoidance. 
Yeah, well, and it's it's the same kind of concept. You're right. Uh, you know, this idea of pushing into pain a bit, but I think that their argument is that pain avoidance in that muscle. If we truly kept them pain free we would be artificially conservative. You know, we'd be, we'd be ultra conservative more than we needed to be. One of the key successes for hamstring strain injuries, because these happen in, in sporting competition, right? And elite athletes and collegiate athletes, amateur athletes who want to get back on the field as soon as possible. That one day, two day, three day difference is critical for them. Professional level, that can be millions of dollars in contract or in revenue. At the amateur level, it could be, being able to make it back for a key intra-city game. So that idea of delaying people longer than we need to is just as much of a problem as pushing them too hard. All right. So we would love to jump into the world of prevention. Uh, what works? What doesn't work? Yeah, that's that's the holy grail, right? For any area of, of sports medicine and in sports injuries, how do we prevent things? But unfortunately, I don't think we've we've solved that one quite yet. You know, for a while there, we thought we did. We thought we had a nugget back in early 2012, 2013. Some research came out saying that the Nordic exercise, if we could objectively quantify load during that exercise, and lo and behold, people developed a device to do just that, that the, the magnitude of your eccentric strength of your hamstrings and or the asymmetry between limbs in eccentric strength is a key risk factor. Right. And so, hey, let's just load people on. We'll measure them preseason. We'll look at their eccentric strength and we'll have one of their their major risk factors. Well, the early data was promising and then more groups started to use it and more data were being collected. And eventually you had meta-analyses being conducted and the meta-analyses showed no value of that eccentric strength, (laughs) exactly, at being able to predict injury. Now, this ability to predict re-injury is still on the table. That we don't know, but as a massive screening tool, it doesn't work that well, at least at this point. The best factors that we know are, unfortunately, ones that we can't really modify. It's prior hamstring injury. That's your biggest risk factor. Super helpful. <laughs> so, exactly, exactly. You know, but what it does tell you, at least as a coach or as a sports medicine staff, to be able to identify those people and say, okay, they're the ones I need to make sure I absolutely do more as part of their off-season conditioning to address hamstrings, right? Sure. So yeah. that's one. And the second one is age. You know, once you reach that ripe old age of 23, you're at a greater risk of hamstring strain injuries. That hurts, Brian. <laughs> I know it. Exactly. Well, I'm just going to say one other piece in terms of like a, a way to prevent or identify risk is some people really still focus on hamstring flexibility. This big hallmark indicator of risk, it's not. It's been shown over and over again. Hamstring flexibility is not a key indicator of injury risk, nor is it a key aspect of the rehab in terms of needing to stretch because the range of motion like active knee extension test we talked about before, that fully recovers if you just focus on on the load progression. You don't need to actually passively stretch or push the range of motion for it to fully recover. Are there any big changes in this CPG from what we've seen in prior literature that are going to be juicy takeaways for people? Are they going to, you know, to really change the way that we're treating? I think the biggest one is one, we, we know that eccentric strength is critical to the rehab process, right? Is, is it predictive of injury risk? No, but that's okay. That doesn't mean we, we ignore it and it's not important. It is critical to the rehab process, right? We need to have eccentric strength. 
Two, the value of coordination and agility training becomes very important as well. That has a positive effect on reducing re-injury risk. And then third piece that has also been a bit underrepresented in prior literature is how critical running is as part of the rehab process, right? So a lot of times we think of rehab as, as our exercise-based progression, right? And then, and then they're ready to go back to sport and now we'll start the running. It's too late. We now have created too long of a recovery timeline than what we needed to. There are groups currently, and there are studies being done to look at what if we had people running from day one or day two after injury, you know, not running at 80% of sprinting speed, but at 30%, 40 at a jogging pace, at an easy jog pace. And every part of their rehab process had a running component to it. And so by the time they reach near return to sport determination, they are running 80%, 90%, and potentially even full sprinting speed that they would need to do on the court. I mean, could you imagine if, if you cleared somebody to return to, to full competition and then th their next event was a game the following day or two, which absolutely happens. I mean, you clear somebody to play and they're going to get back in the field as soon as you can. And they've never run before. And oh, by the way, their position, of course, is running. Uh, you know, they never run as part of your rehab. And now they're for the first time being exposed to it in that sort of scenario. Or they've only rehabbed at 50 to 70% of, of intensity. And now they're going to game intensity for running. That's the, the key mechanism for hamstrings is running. So we don't want to avoid that exposure to running as, during the rehab process. You mentioned return to sport. What are we looking for? What do we want the athlete to be able to do? What are those metrics that we want to hit before we're able to say, hey, I think this athlete is really ready to go back? That's a very hot topic right now because unfortunately, the metrics that have been, have been used in the research are not strong enough. Right. They're not they're not rigid enough. They're not objective enough. They are things like the activity extension test and how much range of motion. Okay, that's good. But again, think about the sporting demands that you're now clearing this person to. Is that enough to make a determination? No, but it's part of the puzzle. Two is strength, right? We want to assess their strength. Do you know that almost every RCT that's been done at determining their return to sport criteria, strength was assessed by handheld dynamometry or manual muscle test? Nothing like the Nordic curl and using that force output to determine are they back to, to that level of uh, pre-injury status or being able to load them that intensely to say they could tolerate it. Or can they sprint? Are they back to 100% of sprinting? You know, what we like to see is people sprinting at 80 to 90% effort with no apprehension, no complaints of stiffness, and no complaints of pain. If they can do that two or three passes through, that's a really good indication that that muscle is at a good place. Now, again, we need to couple that with the range of motion measure with an aggressive strength measure. Those are probably your biggest ones. I want to make sure that we hit on everything that you thought was the most important from the CPG, Brian. The only other thing I think I would throw out is that, again, from the CPG standpoint, we, we danced around it a little bit. And that is how do we classify muscle injury severity, right? We talked about grade one, two, and three, which has a variety of things to it and arguably is too ambiguous to be of, of a whole lot of value. But there are very strong classification systems that are being used for most for hamstring strain injuries that are structural based only. So they involve ultrasound imaging, but more often than not, they involve MRI. 
whether that ever has a role in clinical practice, because we're not going to do an MRI on every hamstring strain injury that comes into your clinic. But from a research standpoint, it's very critical for us to be able to, to characterize what that damage is and the severity of it. But eventually, what we're starting to see is that that structural classification may be very insightful to determine the best plan of care to follow. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to get an MRI. Like I say, I'm not, I'm not trying to justify adding MRI to your diagnostic process or your, or your evaluation process, but it does mean that we're going to have to come up with some way to determine severity more objectively if it really is that critical to plan of care determination. And it seems like between one and two, it's not, but between two and three, it might, it might be. Yeah. And even now we're starting to see, even within that range of two, right? Because two is this enormous area, right? And so that's what we're starting to see at the most in is if there are certain characteristics that can fall within a two, that if they're present on the MRI, then you can prognosticate that this person's going to likely need more time in rehab versus if these things, if these aspects are not present, then they'll probably get back in the field sooner. We hit on everything we needed to. You, we've sufficiently shared the knowledge within the CPG. If people want to find it, we'll link it in our show notes. But thank you so much for taking the time and, and really putting this in a nice, concise way for all of our listeners. We really appreciate taking the time today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chelsea. Thanks, Dan. And so one last time, we want to thank Dr. Brian Heiderscheidt for sitting down with us today and helping us improve our care for patients with hamstring strains. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.